Hey guys, Tim Brotz here. I'm a real estate investor. I primarily invest in apartment buildings. I own a little over 3,200 units, but didn't start out there. You know, went through a lot of the grind and a lot of tough times in order to get to where I am today. So we're going to go through a lot of content, a lot of stuff. I'm hoping to provide as much value as I possibly can here. I'm excited to be on, on Sam's show. I know he's a first class guy and, and is a big giver in a, in a big way. So hey, if you're wanting to learn about how to invest in real estate, listen to my good friend, Sam Newell's podcast, Recession Proof Real Estate Investing. Dude's got a ton of knowledge, buddy of mine, first class individual. So you're going to get a lot of value out of his podcast. Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession proof. Hey, thanks for being on the show. I'm really excited to have you and I'm excited to have people hear what you're doing because as far as someone my age, you're crushing it. I mean, just the most successful syndicator and real estate investor I've actually met in person and, and, uh, kind of a uh, kind of jealous and excited for you at the same time so so way to go man no, I appreciate it dude we'll uh, uh, happy to share some knowledge and drop some bombs and and offer any sort of insight that I possibly can to help some other people uh, you know lend a hand back so that they would that way they could build some real wealth too absolutely well and I feel like our generation I mean you're 34 right is that is that correct yep okay so we're the same age our generation uh, they're really just starting to make good money. And they're all of my friends, my, my people I went to, to college with, they're really starting to have that nest egg build up and, and get serious about real estate investing. And so uh, what I want to do first, though, is let's take you back to high school. I, I'm just kind of curious, what were your goals? Did you think about real estate investing? Did you even have a clue what real estate investing was? Because I really didn't. I was just playing football and basketball and, and hanging out. So I'm kind of curious. Yeah. Good, good question. Like I, I get a lot of people asking me about, you know, when did you know? And a lot of, I talk a lot about college and after college, right? Early on, but not a lot on earlier years or high school. Like, what do you want to do? And uh, man, when I was in like elementary school, middle school, I always wanted to be a doctor. You know, it was, I always heard doctors made a lot of money and that's for whatever reason, always motivated me. And I was always very interested in that. Um, but my dad, uh, he had, he, he, he was like a rich dad, poor dad, both of them at the same time. And he, he had a part-time business that made about two to three times as much at his, as his full-time job. And I, and I remember watching that growing up thinking like, dad, why are you still doing your full-time job? What if you dedicated full-time effort to your part-time business that paid for your life and this house and all these things? He was a cop, so he didn't make a ton of money, but good money, you know? And then all of a sudden his, his part-time business was making a few hundred thousand dollars a year, you know? Wow. And so- Wait, what I, did he do? What did he do? Yeah, what was he doing there on the- He was a police side? officer full-time and then he had a part-time security business that provided oh. personnel security to foundries and factories and apartment buildings. And, uh, you know, so essentially he would, he would put on-site staff and security officers, you know, at these, at these factories around Cleveland and at these apartment buildings around Cleveland, they'd make their rounds and they'd be 24 hour right. security. And, and, and that's all he did. It just, it kind of fell in his lap. The one account led to another account. He was like 
the best of the guys who would take the crappy accounts, you know? <laughs> and so um, he wasn't like an Aramark or, or like one of these like more prestigious that the companies, but he was the only reliable guy who would take mm. these, these, you know, C-class, D-class apartment buildings and factories in the hood and, and all those guys, but he, big accounts, right? Multi, yeah. multi-million dollar, yeah. tens of millions of dollars business being done a year and um, in, in those factories. And then they hired him and it supplied very, very well for him and for our family. And we never knew want, you know, um, we yeah. always had what we needed, but he was always like, uh, go to school, get a good job, get good grades, you know, like, so you can go to work. Uh, for somebody else i'm like man it just didn't sit right with me well, well wait a second what was his answer though i'm i, I gotta i'm curious to know why didn't he give up being a police officer did he love it or did he just not feel Dude, like I, security was well, well, well here's the thing enough. i think when you when you don't come from money it's you're almost afraid to lose it right and uh -huh. He comes from a generation he didn't have a dad growing up and um his his mom just worked and worked and worked he was very poor growing up with a single mother and uh his brother and sister were many years older than him and already out of the house and he was just kind of never had money so when he got money he was almost afraid to lose it and and you know lived from a he, he was never you know opposed to spending money on let's say uh, vacations, family activities, right. going out to dinner with the family. He always spent money on that. He, he wanted a nice home for our family and a good community, all that kind of stuff. But like, he always lived on less to give us more. You know, he would, he would wear, I remember this t-shirt that he wore all the time. It would have like holes in the armpits and like mustard stains all over. And I'm like, dad, why don't you buy a new shirt? He goes like, I don't, I don't need to. He goes and gets new, new shoes from Kmart every four oh, years, five years, goodness. you know, like, like that's the kind of mindset that my, my dad always, wow. but kind of millionaire next door type of mindset as well. Yeah, um, yeah. Very good at saving, very thrifty, but at the same time, not opposed to spending time or money with family, you know, um, cool. always worked three jobs for <clears throat> my entire life. You know, he was, he had the, the business, his primary police job. And then I had the, uh, he would either teach or mentor or worked his way, got his PhD and then, and then went and taught for the local wow. community college and all sorts of, while he had a business, while he was working a wow. full-time job, while he had four kids at home, you know, like crazy, crazy work ethic. But I think when you come from not having money, you're afraid to lose it. There is mm -hmm. some stability in having a job or at least perceived stability in having a job. And Absolutely. so- Although he only made, what I don't even know what he made, 60, 70 grand a year. He was, he was kind of higher up in the police department, probably what they made back then. But it had health insurance, right? Like one of the biggest yeah. kind of things out there is just like I was saying my job for health insurance. And the right. reality is like health insurance is 800 bucks a month for a family plan. Yeah, $1,000 a month for a family plan. Like no reason to stay in a dead end job. Not saying it was dead end. But I have friends not, that work at UPS just for health insurance. And I'm like, what are you doing? But it's it makes funny no how sense. that mentality. It's such a fallacy people feel like it's secure. They feel like they have a secure job or they feel like they need the health insurance. And mm -hmm. it's such a UPS fallacy. Or, it's so yeah. made up. It's, it's, it's something that was ingrained in our heads since early, early on. It's, and it's total BS, man. It, it makes yeah. no sense whatsoever from yep. a real estate standpoint. If you're flipping houses, dude, that's, that's a half of a deal right? You have to do yeah. one half of a deal and it covers all your health insurance for the entire year. Exactly. You're going to stay in your dead end job for, because of health. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to me. So anyways, yeah. I, I understand where he's coming from because he's got four uh -huh. kids, you know, he's got a mortgage, he's got a, a spouse, like, like four kids going through school at, you know, going through 
this, you know, going to college, you know, like yeah. none of us came out of school with any debt. My dad stroked a check wow. to pay for all of our college. And, and when there's, you go there's that safety for- net that a job always has. And because of that, he always, he, he sustained, maintained that job. And he had the work ethic where he's like, that's okay. I could just do both, you know, and I can yeah. have the stability, but I can still have the business as well. Um, but me growing up, looking at that, realizing, you know, majority of his, the whole Pareto rule, like 80, 20 rule, you know, 80% of his income or whatever it was, I don't know, maybe it was 60, 70, 80. Yeah. 80% of his income was coming from 20% of his efforts. And yep. I'm like, let me go. I, I didn't know what the Pareto rule was back then, but <laughs> I, I was at least conscious enough to recognize it. And I'm like, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to start my own yeah. business. I had a, a few jobs in high school and college. And I was like, but I always made CDs. Remember when you can rip music off of Napster and yeah, oh yeah. uh, rip music from there and I'd create CDs and I'd sell them for five bucks, 10 bucks. People would tell me what 10 songs they wanted and I'd make, make the CDs and I'd sell those. I used to cut people's hair in high school and that's how I made money. Right. And then I also wow. had a, a, a job. And so I always had like this entrepreneurial, like, let me figure out a way to go and make some money kind of thing. And then when I went through college, 03 to 07, the market was going crazy. Everybody's making money. If you had a pulse, if you would, if you were breathing, you could make money in real estate. Similar yep. to what we're going through today, right? Oh yeah. And I remember thinking, like, I like to make money. Let me go and get involved <laughs> in real estate. And so I went and right. I started like a construction, like a painting company where we paint houses every summer in college. Um, I went and worked for one of the biggest home builders in uh, in the country and interned for them one summer. And dude, I just remember them coming in. Like the VP came in to a sales meeting one week. And he's like, somebody give me a good idea. And if anybody even raised their hand, even if it was a bad idea, he'd give them a hundred dollar bill. And I'm like, what oh, wow. kind of world are we living in? Nice. And you know, so, so I'm going through all this stuff. And I'm like, real estate is where it's at. There must be unlimited amounts of money in real estate. And, uh, and I know people like, if this guy's making money, I'm going to get rich doing this. You know? right. And so, so out of college, my brother was living in New York at the time. I ended up moving out to New York city. I got a real estate license. I think that's what a lot of people do when they want to get into real estate. Mm-hmm. They go and get licensed. Uh, you don't have to go down that road, but that's what I did. And I know that's what you did. Right. And then I, I, but I went to work for a commercial real estate company in Manhattan. And what we did is we broker and uh, leases for office space and retail space. Okay. So if there was a vacant office space or vacant retail space, like Manhattan is a big mall almost, right? Everything ground floor is retail space. Right. If there was a business owner that wanted to expand, find a second location, start a business, whatever, we would represent them and, and try to find them a space. If there was a landlord who had a retail space for rent, we would represent them and try to find a business for that. And then we'd, we'd broker the lease. It's a very long process. Took me about eight months to close my first deal. Um, 22 years old at the time. And I closed my first deal. It was 400 square feet, probably the size of a, <laughs> it's a, a couple of bedrooms, you know, two residential yeah. bedrooms is about the size of this thing. And we signed a lease for $10,000 a month. Wow. 4% annual increases, 12 year lease term. And dude, 22 year old kid doing the math on this thing, writing this thing out. This guy's making $1.85 million over the next 12 years for doing something at one point in time. For 400 square like, feet. Dude, dude, I'm on the wrong side of the coin. I need to be owning real estate, not broker. And, yeah. you know, went down this path of like reading everything I possibly could, learning about real estate. And this, this like residual income bug bit me. And this, this passive income bug bit me. And I'm like, dude, there's, I know there's more than trading your time for money. Um, I remember like walking through the park 
in New York City like on a Tuesday morning and I'm like, there's, mm-hmm. there's got to be something better to life because there's a people all over Central Park and all over Madison Square Park and all over like, how is this possible that none of them are at a job right now and they're hanging out right. at a park in the middle of the work week playing f- catch with their dog or their kids or whatever. Like they can't be on vacation. You know, they're like, this is yeah. whatever it was. And, um, I was well, like, so let me stop you. Called income, right. Yeah. Let me stop you there. Sorry to interrupt, but it sounds like early on, I, I want to make two important points. You didn't want, like what you just said, you didn't want to trade time for money, which that's what selling real estate is trading time for money. It's a job. It's even though you're working for yourself many times, it, it's a job. Yep. Uh, it's a good job, good career. But you saw your dad early on kind of wanting this security, wanting the security of a job or health insurance. And so it sounds like you're one of those people that's an entrepreneur at heart and you wanted to get to that next level of owning your own business, working mm-hmm. for larger amounts of money, even if it meant less security and less of that warm, fuzzy feeling of a job and, and health insurance. Well, I always looked at it like, What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, I, I would always weigh out the options. And when I, you're I'd single, say, hey, what's the, what is the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. And what's the best thing that could happen? Yeah. And if I could live with the worst possible scenario, screw it, man, let's go for it, right? And you think about, like, like finance is one of those funny things where like it, it dictates a lot, especially in this culture in the United States of mm-hmm. America and across the world, it dictates a lot of how we behave. It is, right. it's almost like a, uh, it, it, like it, it's almost like a trance that people get in, like whatever creates the most money. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, but when I, when I looked at it, I'm like, the, the worst possible scenario is you go down to here, right? You're at zero, mm-hmm. yep. but guess what? There's a floor. You can't yeah. go lower than like it's zero. The best possible scenario is infinity. There's no ceiling on this thing of how much money you can make. Oh, yeah. And so I've always looked at money of like, dude, worst case, like, and listen, I've never been negligent. I've never been uh, careless. I've never been reckless, especially with taking on other people's money and having passive investors. Like, that is a big responsibility. You have to be a great mm-hmm. steward of capital and right. always put their uh, uh, interest ahead of yours. So I would never do anything like that. But at the, when it comes to taking risks personally for me, I always saw it, dude, it's not a life or death thing. Like we're, we're trained to have these instincts, right? Like, or, or not mm-hmm. trained, but like we were born with instincts, uh, you know, carnal instincts of fear. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's because when we were cavemen uh, 10 million years ago or whatever, you had to worry about a saber tooth tiger jumping on your oh, neck yeah. and biting you and killing you. Right. And so you've right. got these fear instincts already in us. Yeah. And something happens where we create this fear in our heads about financial dangers. Dude, financial, they're not life threatening dangers though, you right. know, but we treat them as if they are. What's the, I can't remember what the movie is. It's the one with Will Smith and his kid and they go, Oh, it's earth. Right. And, and he's uh, like, listen, pursuit of happiness. Uh, it's not, it's not that it's the one, it's oh. the one where he's, uh, where him and his kid are like, I don't know. Oh, you're right. Yeah. They crash land on earth. They like, crash land on earth and yeah, everything's yeah, yeah. there to kill humans and all, whatever. Yep, uh, yep. And, um, essentially he's like, fear is not real. Danger is real, but mm-hmm. fear is just something that we make up. Right. Yep. And so 
you know, I, I think about that sometimes. I'm thinking like people are fearful about pushing limits because they're worried about losing everything financially or they're like, well, they wouldn't you say it instead of the opportunity? And it never made sense yeah. to me. W- wouldn't you say it's a function of, of not being educated on the subject? Because I feel like <laughs> if I try to go to Cleveland, buy a 400 unit apartment complex and rehab it, I'm going to be scared. I'm, I'm going to be scared because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Dude, I do, Whereas, I do, I do I try to do that in Salt time. Lake. If I try to do that in Boise, Salt Lake, I can, I know the contractors. I know exactly how much it's going to cost me. I can do it. No problem. Whereas you're doing that every single day and you're like, Oh yeah, no, I know exactly what it's going to cost. There's no real risk for you because you've educated yourself. You've become the professional. And so that risk is hugely mitigated by your education and your knowledge and your expertise. I mean, that's what I feel people, that's why they're listening to this podcast because they need to get rid of the fear and they need to get rid of the perceived risk by educating themselves. And and education is a very important thing. What you don't know can hurt you, right? Ignorance is not bliss, you know? Like those things, like you want to be educated. Education creates more confidence. Confidence then breeds success. More success breeds more confidence. And then it's a perpetuating cycle. Yep. What I found is there's definitely an element of being educated, right? Mm -hmm. But there's also an element of you don't need to know everything, dude. If you know how to find the answers, that's more important than having the answers. So meaning, I remember hearing Tony Robbins say one time, he goes, listen, a lot of people say they can't do this, they can't do that because they don't have the time, the money, the knowledge, the resources. He goes, but if you're resourceful, resourcefulness is the ultimate resource. If you're yeah. resourceful, you can go find the time, you can go find the money, you can go find the knowledge. And that is probably the, that along with, I think self-awareness are probably the two most critical elements to success. It's one, how self-aware am I? Do I know what's going on? I'm, I'm, I'm able to reflect on situations. I'm able to learn. I'm able to see the things that worked. I'm able to understand why things didn't work and not make that same mistake again. That, right. that awareness is very important. And I don't see it talked about enough on success shows and, and in principles and different books and all things like that. Yeah. So that's one. The other one is being resourceful. If you are resourceful from an action standpoint, you can figure it out. Dude, I bought my first house at the age of 23 in 2009 in a market that I just moved to six months prior. And I had never done a deal in the worst real estate economy ever. And I didn't have money. People, nobody's going to give me money. Who's going to, who the hell is going to give me (laughs) money to go buy a house when the market crashed nine months earlier? Nobody's going to give six months earlier. Nobody's going to give some punk 23 year old kid money, but I was resourceful. I called up my credit card company. I asked them to increase my limit. They increased the limit. I found the cheapest house on the market. I got them to give me a balance transfer check. I bought the house with a balance transfer check. I love it. I physically did all the work. I Google searched or YouTubed how to change out carpet, how to change out fixtures. I'm reading the instructions. You You know all those instructions on YouTube. I I remodeled entire homes watching YouTube. (laughs) Dude, dude, like I actually read the directions in the box on how to install a light fixture. Who the hell does that, right? but I, I had to get the information and I knew where to get the information and I was willing to do the work to get the information. Dude, if you're resourceful, you will find the resources and, and, and you know, if you come to Cleveland, Ohio, guess what? At least you know, all, what do I have to do? 
I need to find contractors. Okay, great. Let's yeah. uh, Google search general contractors, Cleveland, Ohio, and see who pops up. And then let's pick up the phone and call them and have them come out and quote this project. You know, if I need to find management companies, let me Google search. Like all the information's at the tip of our fingers. It's right. just people create these, these roadblocks in their own head. They create fear in their own head. And I don't understand why they focus on fear when they can focus on the positive elements instead. Like you realize that faith and fear are the exact same thing. They're both, True. they're both believing in something that has not yet come to be something that has never happened. The difference though is one's positive and one's negative. Here's, here's the coolest part of this whole thing. We get to decide if we want to be positive or if we want to focus on the negative. I love so it. Most, and most people are negative, right? What's that? And most people are negative. They, that's just how they the live negative. their lives. What's the downside? What's the downside? What's the, what's the, what's the upside? Yeah. Oh, what if I go bankrupt? What if you got rich? What if you redesigned your family tree forever and, and created legacy wealth that you're able to pass down and, and positively impact future generations for, generate, for, for, for hundreds of years? What if you made that? What if you were able to make enough money to create a nonprofit that then researched cancer and cured it? What if you were able to create a nonprofit that was able to get rid of, you know, kids' congenital heart defects? You know, like, like what right. if you were able to do things? Like, think about that. You know, what, oh, what if I lose some money? What if a general, what if a contractor burns me? What if, what if this happens or what if that happens? Dude, what if you changed everything. What if you could build a financial wall around your family that nothing could ever get through? You know, like I love it, man. I why not it. focus on those things instead of the fears? Isn't that upside potential worth so much more than the downside risk? And to me, it always has been. To me, it was it always was. And so that's why I have it's not that I don't live in fear. Like, like there's things that I'm like, oh man, like it kind of gets my heart pumping a little bit. I'm a little bit. <laughs> nervous about this, but I know that I know how to get the answers and I know right. what my potential, like, I don't, I don't know what my potential is. And right. I posted the other day on social media, dude, like my biggest fear in my life is laying on my deathbed and thinking back on my life, thinking like I did not push my limits enough. I could have done more. I could have been more. I could have impacted more. I could have influenced more. And I didn't live to my potential. That is a bigger risk to me than the risk of any deal I could possibly do. You know, I, I love it. And I have a similar fear. My fear isn't, I don't think about on my deathbed. I think about, hey, what if I make it big two or three years from now and I stop improving and I stop listening to others? You know, you talked about being self-aware. I think most people are so unself-aware, it's ridiculous. They get mm -hmm. stuck in, they let everybody else they are. They're not improving. And that's my biggest fear because I, I realize that I have my potential is so huge if I will be self-aware. And what's interesting is, is uh, you and I have a few friends that have hit it big. I hit it pretty big last couple of years and, and it creeps in this, this thought that you don't need to keep improving. And, and maybe if it's not, it's not even a conscious thought, you just think you're awesome. And so what I found is I need to join these mastermind groups where I'm, I'm around a Tim Brotz who's crushing it way bigger than I am. But then you need to be around, you know, a Glenn Gonzalez or a Maureen Miles who's doing maybe a little bit better or similar to you or just better in different areas and uh, stay self-aware. And, and I think that's huge, man, because most people just don't want to improve. 
they don't want to self-reflect. They don't want to be told they're not perfect and they, they stop progressing. Well, it's a, it's a painful thing for people to self-reflect and realize yeah. I'm not doing what, like, that's a painful thought. I'm not doing what I could be doing. Yep. And it makes them so uncomfortable that they decide not to do it. Yep. And hey, uh, you know, again, ignorance is not bliss, right? It's not, uh, it's not. To, to me, it's so painful for me to not know what my potential is. And to think that I'm playing small, that it pushes me to do things, mm -hmm. to get into bigger rooms, to get into, around people who are doing more. And I will say this, at every level you get to, there's somebody doing more. You know, like if I can just push yep. to this level, I know I'm going to be there. I know I'm going to be good. And then you realize like, wow, there's a whole nother level and more levels and more levels and other rooms that you can be in. And it's almost, dude, it's almost like infectious, this growth piece. Like once you go down that road of wanting to become a better person and wanting to be, you know, continuously improve yourself, dude, it's hard to stop it. You know, it's like, it's it almost, all, it's almost addictive in a good way. Right. I mean, well, it's, and I think, I what think you you're realize, always growing or you're dying and, and I think it's always better to be yeah. growing. And I think what you realize is these people that are uber rich, I mean, there's exceptions to every rule, but these people that are uber successful, they're most of the time it's because they've become better people. They've learned how to be more effective. They learned how to be um, better at negotiating, have better systems. It's not because they got just got lucky or they just inherited all this money. And I think that's the perception that a lot of people have is they cheated someone to get there or they're dishonest or they, they take advantage or, or something. But no, most of the time, the people that I know that are way more successful than me, they're just way more effective than me. They're, they're way better at what they do. And, and that's what I love. Um, I wanted to jump to something you talked about. I mean, your podcast is awesome, by the way. Listen to it. Appreciate it. It's about legacy wealth. And my wife's grandpa in the 1970s, 80s, and early 90s created legacy wealth for his family. So I grew up poor. My wife grew up rich. She grew up rich because her father-in-law built apartment, or her father-in-law, her grandpa built apartment complexes, bought storage units, and amassed a real estate portfolio that he died in the mid-90s. His family, his two kids and his grandkids are still living off of today. And I, I just wanted to tell you that story because I, I love your podcast because that's what I, that's kind of what caught the dream for me is I married into this family. I had no idea how much money they had at the time. We get married and, and I start realizing that no one has to work if they don't want to. No one, mm -hmm. they do, and, but, and they still invest. But I mean, the, the legacy wealth, just like you talk about in your podcast, is out of control. This guy just, he took risk. He went broke once. He learned from his mistakes. And, you know, they, they, when he died in the 90s, this was, I mean, a long time ago, a long mm -hmm. time ago, they're still reaping the benefits and they still have multi-million dollars worth of real estate holdings. Well, yeah. And, and it's because he bought assets and he let other people pay for them and mm -hmm. eventually they got paid off. And eventually guess what? The values are still there right now. Now they're yeah. worth even more money. And real estate's one of those things where dude, it doesn't care if you have a PhD or a GED, you can make a lot of money in real estate and yep. it can be really an equalizer as long as you're smart enough to go out and buy an asset, right? Stop yep. buying liabilities, buy assets and then yep. get other people to pay for those assets, right? Yep. So just buying rental real estate. The more real estate you buy, the more 
uh, and you have tenants in there, the tenants cover all your operating expenses, they cover all your debt service, and then it puts mm -hmm. money in your pocket on a monthly basis. You know what happens 30 years from now? All the principal on your loan is paid off, mm -hmm. paid down, paid off, you know, and the property appreciated, probably worth double of what you paid for it. And guess what? Dude, that is how real wealth, and you just hang on to it, right? You make sure that the asset's but, still there. But Tim, what if, what if the economy tanks? I mean, what do we do there? That's doesn't a question matter. I get all the time. It doesn't, don't doesn't sell matter. It. Just don't sell it. <laughs> yeah. So you hang on to it and you, you, like something that produces a single family house that's paid off and, and yields you $1,000 a month mm -hmm. in cash flow after all expenses are paid. I don't care if the market goes to zero there's still value to that. Yes or no? Right. Right. Absolutely. There, there will always be value in anything that yields dividends and anything that yields cash flow. And so the, you can, you can let the, you can ride the storm out. I mean, markets are cyclical. It will, it will reduce in value over time. It'll go back up in value, but long-term yeah. it'll be worth more than, than, you know, what it's worth today. As long as the population keeps on growing, right. And yeah. uh, you go down the hospital, there's, there's more people every single day, right? Yep. In the maternity ward. Yep. Population keeps on growing. They're going to need places to live. They're going to need real estate to live in. So, well, uh, and, you know, so real one, of the questions, one of those things where it's like speculative and, uh, you know, it's right. like a tech startup company. Can it work? Can it not work? It's going to work. It's just a matter of time. It, yeah, it can't disappear. And, and that's one of the questions I wanted to talk to you about. You know, when we're underwriting our deals, like we're buying a hotel right now and, and it's just... The, the stress testing is, is hilarious because we look at a worst case scenario. That's how we stress test is if it's like, okay, the economy in 2008, 9, 10 was really bad. Vacancy was at like 10, 12, 15% in some areas. I don't know what it was in Cleveland, but it wasn't that bad in Utah for sure. But this hotel we're buying in New Mexico, it's at 38% occupancy. And at like 38% occupancy for the price we're buying it, we could do nothing in cash flow and, and never rehab it. And, and it's an amazing purchase. But, but most of the apartments we buy, they could be 20% vacant and we're still covering all our expenses. So talk to me because that's the answer to the question. Hey, what's, what happens if there's another recession? And that's what we talk about on my podcast. What, what happens? Well, first of all, learn from Tim and, and myself and other, other investors how to stress test so that when you buy something, you don't really have that risk. It's going to cover its expenses and, and then you don't have to worry about a recession. You're still doing fine. So tell me about your stress testing. Yeah, man. Um, me going through real estate, I lived through the 08, 09 crash. And I saw a lot of people who said that they were worth 60, 70, $80 million mm -hmm. go to goose egg. Yep. And I saw a lot of other people who were able to ride out the storm. And my entire business model is modeled off of my reflections and understanding what happened and why people were able to ride out the storm and why other people went bankrupt. Yep. And a couple key things. One, you don't buy for speculation. People would buy at a retail price and hoping, buying at this price today, hoping tomorrow it goes up to this price. And when it didn't go up to a price, they didn't have cash flow. That's number two. Yep. Always buy for cash flow, cash flow, and never buy for speculation, right? So buy assets that yield cash flow. Land, vacant land does not yield cash flow. I don't buy vacant land. Anything that doesn't have a way to cash flow, I don't invest in. Not saying right. that I don't know people who are making a lot of money doing that stuff. I just I don't have this the the um uh, risk tolerance for that. So me, I only buy things that I know that I can cash flow. 
Uh, and that's typically apartment buildings. I also own some office. I own some self-storage. Uh, I own some vacation rentals. And I want to make sure that the rental income can cover debt service, can cover operating expenses, and put cash in my pocket. And, you know, the number one rule for real estate for me, a lot of people say it's location, location, location. I don't believe that. Number one rule for real estate for me is wholesale, wholesale, wholesale. Mm -hmm. Always buy at a low enough basis at a wholesale price. And dude, if you're buying at a low enough price, you can have a 38% occupancy hotel right. that still cash flows. Yep. And hey, God forbid, man, you get it up to 90% occupancy. You know, <laughs> like who, nobody wants that, to right? But, but if you do, guess what? You make even more money. You know, yep. but if you always buy at a low enough basis, you always have options. And I think if you yep. always have options in life, you know, quantity leads to more quality at the same time. Yep. So, you know, you can let it cash flow. Great. That's an option number one. Option number two, you can sell it. Great. That's option yep. number two. Option number three, you can refinance it and, and pull your money and pay back your investors and then just leave house money in play, like a non-recourse loan or something. Like you have more options. You can be creatively seller finance it. You can do all sorts of different things with it if you buy at a low enough basis. So that's one of the big things that I see a lot of people not doing right now. They're trying to force deals. Like, yep. oh, I need to be a real estate investor. I need to go buy apartment buildings. I'm gonna go and overpay for some apartment building. The hedge funds and the real estate trust do that because they have, you know, FU kind of money. They have such <laughs> deep pockets. They just need some sort of a return. Right. You know, International investors can come and do that because they have hyperinflation going on in their marketplace and they're losing money. So they yep. can buy something that at least if it doesn't lose money, it doesn't have to make money. You know, right. uh, you can't compete with that. So don't compete with it. Find something that's off market, find something that's direct to the seller, negotiate a good deal on it, find something that's distressed and force appreciation, create the appreciation instead of speculating on the appreciation. I love it. I love it. And you know, most of those people, those REITs and, and family offices buying these assets that, at these ridiculous prices, they don't, they're fine. Just like you said, if they, if they just don't lose money or they actually have enough money where they would love to lose a little bit of money and write it off on their taxes. And so what I'm seeing as a realtor and what's crazy in, in my market in Boise and in a couple other markets where I, where I sell is my local investors are competing with these outside investors and they're buying a duplex that negative cash flows three, $400 a month because they just don't understand how to run the numbers or just like you said, they're hoping for appreciation. They're hoping they're, they're speculating. Oh, well, you know, if the market continues for another year, I'll be cash flowing a hundred dollars a month. And then the next year two, 300, and they think they can weather the storm because they're making good money now. But if you own a couple assets that negative cash flow and the, your, your income goes down or you lose your job or, or you're just not making as much money. That's a real problem. And that's where people got caught in the last downturn, I feel, is they weren't being diligent, like you're saying, and they weren't purchasing or getting that price at a wholesale price, and they weren't being patient. They, they just yep. wanted to invest so bad that they were willing to not educate themselves, not be disciplined, and just buy whatever whatever a realtor like me is, uh, maybe not like me, maybe a, a realtor just promised them it would cash flow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean... People, people are making bad decisions. There's a lot of money on the sidelines and it's painful yep. leaving money in a bank account, not making money. Right. Yep. But at the same time, man, it's better to not do a deal than to do a bad deal. As much I, as, I as real estate yep. has 
has helped me and as much as it can help people build up their net worth and their wealth and create this, this legacy wealth that we talk about, uh, dude, one bad deal can totally wipe you out. One. Warren Buffett one. says the number one rule is don't lose money. <laughs> and you know, that's how I've always been. I've been so conservative. I've never made less than a 20% return on my personal investments. I've flipped homes. I've bought duplexes. I've house hacked duplexes. I've flipped, you know, a lot of properties. And now we're buying these multifamily assets where we're going to make way over 20%, but we're passing up so many deals. And it's my business partner and I have to remind ourselves, like, remember what we're, what we're working towards. These returns will be fantastic, but we're going through a hundred deals until we make an offer on one. And it, it's a lot of work, man. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you're looking at this, a lot of deals as well right now and passing on a lot of deals as well. We look at probably four or 500 apartment deals a month and we buy oh. probably two. Yeah. I love it. We, we yeah. make offers on everything though. Hey, that's one thing you said I love and, and we've started doing that. So thank you for, uh, sharing that with me in Denver. So we've been throwing LOIs at everything. And, everything. And uh, so this hotel, we actually passed up on it. So talking about being disciplined and educated, we made an offer and it's a small deal. It's seven, uh, they were asking a million dollars. The guy bought it for 3 million and ran it into the ground. But even at a million bucks, there's, it's such a heavy lift and there's going to be so much brain damage. I said, nope, you know, the numbers are, are good, but let's offer 750. So we offered 750. He's just going to pay cash and, and get out from under it. And he, he said, no, he turned us down. Well, he came back last month and said, can't sell this thing. I'll sell it to you for 500,000. I just, he's going to put about a million into it to sell it. And he just doesn't want to give it back to the bank. He's out of state. He's just a terrible operator. He realizes he should not be an, a hotel owner. Mm-hmm. And so it felt, it felt really, really good telling, calling a couple of my friends and saying, Hey, you know, we're, we're going to buy this thing. We just got to have an accepted LOI. Actually, I, I signed the PSA last night, half a million dollars for a hotel that has 96 rooms. We're getting it on, on an average uh, door-to-door price for 5,200 bucks a door. And it just feels great. It, it's been a lot of work passing up a lot of deals, analyzing a ton of deals. And, and I'm still selling real estate full time. So, so I've been working crazy hours to, to get a couple deals off our first deals off the ground. And, you know, it, it reaffirms that, Hey, I'm doing the right thing. I stuck mm-hmm. to my guns and I'm not making a bad purchase. So I just got an email as we're talking from one of my investors. He said, Hey, have you ever bought a hotel before? Nope never bought a hotel before, but I know how to stress test and I'm resourceful, resourceful, just like you talked about. We already have a franchise agreement in place. We already know exactly how much it's going to cost to run. We've run the, the numbers. We, we know how much it costs to run, run this property and we can't lose, you know? So, so I, I have enough experience and knowledge where I know we can't lose on this deal. And and it's fun when you're looking at 400 deals a month, I'm assuming when you buy the two, you know for sure that you can't lose as well because you've done the underwriting, you've yeah. exhausted all your resources, and you know exactly what the business plan is. Yeah, and you, and you 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 know you really push the numbers where you know if I know that I can you know get a four percent interest rate right now on a, on a mortgage, I'm running it at, at four point seven five or maybe five percent mm-hmm. interest rate. You know, I'm yep. expecting to refinance this thing in twelve months or eighteen months at a 75% loan, I'll run it at 70%. You know, uh-huh. if I can get 
750 to 800 dollars a month in rent on average i'm gonna run it at 750 if i can get 800 guess what it juices the numbers even more you know yep. so there's a lot of different things that we do on our end where we expect uh, interest rates to go up. We expect LTVs to come down because banking regulations are, are, you know, just tightens up a little bit more. Um, right. we're, like we're, we're projecting for all those different kinds of things. And again, stress testing it, like you're saying. And if you do all those things, like everything would have to happen in order to still meet this projection, which is good enough for us to buy it, right? So right. like all these bad things would have to happen in order for it. And if, if only one of those bad things happen or two of, or, or none of them happen, then guess what? It takes these projections and it, and it you know, pushes them up 20% more, 30% more, 50% more. And so that's, that's uh, how we run all of our numbers. I try to kill every single deal that comes across my desk. Yep. Um, my acquisition guy really does. Uh, and then if we cannot kill it, then we know it's a good deal. I love it. And by kill it, you mean vet it out and make it doesn't it work. It's this kind of an area. Up. Yeah. The, the rents at low enough, you know, and we, we just, man, we, we stress it in a big, big way and uh, like all the different numbers. And, and mm -hmm. if it, if it still shakes out after stress testing, all these different numbers, maybe, maybe we're at a, a 6% uh, uh, vacancy rate. Maybe we'll run it at an 8% or 10% vacancy rate. Still right. works, man. This could be this could be a deal, you know. Right. Well, um, it, we, you know, we expect to renovate every single unit. If we don't right. have to renovate every single unit, and guess what? It keeps an extra seven to ten thousand dollars per unit in our pocket, or or lowers our basis by that much more. You know, just all those all those different kinds of things. We do it across the board uh, on all on every single property. And if uh, the numbers still work after trying to kill it all these different ways, then we know it's a pretty good deal. I love it. I love it. Well, and you know, let's go back a little bit. So you're an experienced syndicator. You're doing, you know, you've purchased hundreds of millions of dollars of apartments, but it's funny because you and I have a very similar start. So I bought my first flip in 2010. I was 24 years old mm -hmm. at, at the bottom of the market. I was really hard to get a loan because I was doing summer sales, knocking doors while I was going to school at Brigham Young University. I'd go out to Philadelphia or Jersey and sell alarm systems in the ghetto where people were getting robbed every day, made great money doing it, but it's hard to get a loan. Um, you know, and just like you're saying, banks were tightening up. They, they were kind of scared. They didn't want to give a lot of mortgages. And I was just a young kid trying to buy this big house that was in terrible shape. And, and anyways, so I started similar. I, I flipped a few homes and um, I, I want to hear your story though, because, because you know, you and I have both had maybe not the best partnerships. And when people look to invest, you may have to go through a couple partnerships that aren't the best until you find the right ones. And the right partners will absolutely make your investing career that much better. So take me through flipping homes, uh, progressing from flipping homes to uh, what you're doing now, which is buying huge apartment complexes. Yeah, you know, I, so I flipped that initial house down in, uh, this is down in Charleston, South Carolina. I moved down there and wanted some better quality of life when I was 23, uh, just better weather really. And uh -huh. uh, so I was down there, flipped that house. I ended up doing it again. And I started out pretty much in the ghetto, right? Doing yeah. stuff in the hood. I got some of my best returns and some of my worst returns in the hood. Those are the cheapest properties and those were the easiest entry level for me to get into. But then I, I started getting into a little bit, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit better of an asset. Maybe not, probably not of areas, but at least I met people and they saw that I was doing deals and I tried to wholesale and um, assign some contracts. And I, I started doing a lot of that. And eventually I came to people who were like, 
oh man, you're a real estate investor. Well, I got some cash, you know, can you, can you do anything with it? Or, hey man, I got some money. I can't buy this deal because I don't have the bandwidth for it, but why don't I just uh, close on it for you? Why don't you, why don't I give you the money and you go and do the work, Tim? And we figured out a way to just kind of split up the deal that way. And so that's how I got my first private money lenders. And they started coming to me. Private money is one of those things where it's like, it's like hunting versus fishing. If you go hunting, guess what? The prey runs away, you know? But if you put, if you just put a lure in the water and you educate people and you tell them what you're doing and how you're doing it, then they have interest in, mm -hmm. and eventually they come to you and they're like, Hey, yeah. uh, you know, what, what are you doing? Why don't you tell me more about what you got going on over there? Especially and then, if you're catching and it's, some it's big more fish. of an order taking than it is selling, you know? Yeah. It got out of that. I got into like a network marketing company for a couple of years, 2010, 2011, and stopped doing real estate. And when I was doing that, uh, I, I, you know, spent a lot of money, put a lot of miles on my car, did, and I was in the top 1% of the company and made no money, right? Oh, <laughs> it was wow. like made about two G's a month and that's about it. Wow. And uh, for two years. And so I was just like dead broke. I, I racked up all this debt and um, got a lot of personal development out of it, really grew as an individual and as an entrepreneur from that side of things. But but financially was devastated. And mm -hmm. so I was like, man, I got to get out of this. I got to get back into real estate because, because a few years before, you know, I had, I had 10 houses, built a portfolio of 10 houses that produced enough cash flow uh, to cover all the operating expenses and all the debt service and put $3,000 a month in my pocket. I was not wow. rich, but at the age of 24, 25 years old, I was, I was financially free. My, my yeah, overhead, my life was like, 2,500 bucks, you know, a month. And so, yeah. dude, I covered my, my own personal mortgage. I covered my car payment. I covered going out expenses and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, like, like I just go hang out on the beach if I wanted to. I'm, again, I'm not rich. I'm not taking any vacation I want, but I lived in Charleston, South Carolina, next to the beach and in an nice. awesome town. And, and I'm like, that was better than, than being broke like I am in 2012. And so I decided to leave that company and a couple of guys approached me when they heard that I was getting back into real estate and they said, Hey man, you know, we got a bunch of cash. Can we invest with you? And I created a, an exclusive partnership with these, with these couple of guys, you know, and I, and I think, I think maybe like there are some whispers of some things that life told me that like, Hey man, probably, probably don't. But I think like when you're in that desperate of a situation, uh, financially, you're just looking for any opportunity that, that opens right. up. And so right. partnered up with these guys initially was, was a very positive partnership and it just turned a little bit, you know, greedy. Like you see how people act when they lose money. Sometimes yep. they can get worse when you make money, you know, Oh yeah. we were making money. Um, I was doing hundred percent of the work and thought that, uh, everything wasn't balanced of, uh, who was contributing to what. And they, uh, uh again, you can talk to their side of the story. You can hear my side of the story. The truth is probably a blend of both. And long story short, man, we just decided to go different ways. And what was tough about that is I had an exclusive relationship with them and I didn't own any property other than what I owned with them. So when we decided to liquidate, oh, wow. we had to, or dissolve the company, we had to liquidate all of our property. And essentially I had to start over again in 2016, you know? So three and a half, four years ago, I liquidated everything, but I had a new lease on life. I was like, when you're in that situation, you know, yeah. sometimes it's very, very difficult to see the big picture and you're like, everything's right. crumbling. It, it ended up getting a little bit messy for a bit where we uh -huh. both lawyered up and we both kind of like suing each other. And uh, then we decided only the attorneys were going to get rich in that situation. We decided to True. sit down 
<laughs> say, hey, let's just liquidate everything. Tim, you can go do whatever you want. And here's what the split's going to be. And so we decided on that. We agreed to that, liquidated the properties over the course of the next year, but it allowed me to go out and do more deals. And what happened was people were like, dude, I didn't know that you were, you were open. Like you're taking on private investors now. Can we partner yeah. up on a deal? And so I'm a big believer. Like when people come to me and they come to my mastermind and they're like, Oh, I got a business partner. I'm thinking about going into business with this person. I'm like, don't, don't have a business, not married across everything. I'm married. And the only person I want to be married to is my wife. I don't want to be right. married across all my assets and all my net worth with, with one individual. So for me, I joint venture and I love joint venturing because joint venturing is more like dating. You know, yep. you can partner up on this one deal, but you don't have to partner up on all the deals. And if the relationship goes really well, then guess what? You can go on a second date or do a second deal together. And if eventually down the road, you decide to part ways or not do more deals together, that's cool. Right? Right. We're together because we love each other, not because of some binding contract. You know, we're able to yep. do more deals together because yep. we like being in business with each other. We counterbalance each other's uh, strengths and weaknesses and all that kind of stuff. And, it, and we make a really good team. But something happens to you, something happens to me, life, and life happens. It's not always about right. like, you know, negative things or people go bad and, and, and you see the, the, the dark side of individuals. It's just, dude, hey. I had kids, you know, I got married. I, I have different priorities or maybe somebody else does, or maybe somebody wants to move to Florida right. and they don't want to live in Cleveland, Ohio. Want to retire. Yeah. Dude, that's, that's cool. Just life happens. And I don't want to be, I don't want to have to liquidate my entire portfolio again because one person that I'm partnered with doesn't see eye to eye with what I have going on. So I right. own a hundred percent of my business, but then I go and partner up with individuals on a deal by deal basis. And, right. uh, a lot of times I know who those people are or, or I've actually educated them and partnered or like they came out to come out to one of my events or I've coached them or whatever. And I know who they are initially. If I don't know who they are, I, I, I typically do not partner up with that person. Um, I, or I, at least I can tell you, I never have, unless I already right. had a preexisting relationship with them. I knew what their work ethic was. I knew what their skills and their talents were. And, right. um, you know, I knew that I could bring money there and uh, it would be in, in a, a good, positive, safe place. Got it. Well, and I love it. And you do see the real side of people when they start making money. And that's what happened to me, me, me with my partners is we started making crazy money, crazy money and, and they got greedy and it, and it felt gross. And I struggled for a while after, after we parted ways, but Hey, it, it feels so good to be partnered with the right people. And oh, big um, time. Tim, you're doing huge things. I, I love your podcast. So I, I'm going to put the link to your podcast in my show notes link to your website if people want to invest in your area and, and look at what you're doing. I think they should reach out to you because I love your, what you're doing. You have the experience. You're not one of these guys speculating. You're actually doing deals and, and doing deals very, very well. So I really appreciate you having time or making time for me to be on the podcast. Last piece of advice for someone wanting to invest in real estate what would you say, what, what, what should they do? Should they buy a duplex, a townhome? Should they invest with you in, in a large syndication? I mean, what do you think people should do? Um, I think, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I think everybody should go, like the one thing that I wish I would have done earlier was join a mastermind. A mastermind yep. changed everything for me. If you don't know what that is, it's a group of people sitting in a room, um, in a semicircle saying, hey, here's my biggest pain point in my life or my business right now. Is there anybody that can offer advice or counsel or influence of some sort? 
and there's yep. enough brain power in the room. It's usually a very high level room of entrepreneurs and, and thought leaders that can say, Hey, dude, I just went through that. You know, Sam, like yep. I, I, I hit that wall about two years ago. Here's what I did. Here's what I wish I didn't do. Here's what yep. worked or what didn't work. And all of a sudden you learn from other people's experiences and it pushes you through that glass ceiling that much quicker. And, it, and, it. and not just, not just going to one, but joining a mastermind where you plug in every quarter, let's say two, like three, four times a year, you're around that group. They know you, they know what your long-term goals are. And because yep. what, what you will find is every level you get to in life or business, there's another level oh, above yeah. you, right? And there's another problem. There's another hurdle. There's another uh, issue that pops up or something that you got to navigate around. And being in that group, continuously helps you push through a ceiling, push through a ceiling. And it, it, you know, you get like these accelerators in your business every single time you go to one of those events. And so if you're plugging in on a regular basis, like that is something that I wish I would have done sooner. So the number one, the first thing that I would invest in is invest in yourself, right? Invest yep. in your own education, invest in your own knowledge, invest in, uh, that's something that can never be taken away. If you're going to look for something uh, tangible, and you've never owned a rental real estate before, I would just go buy a house, go buy a duplex, go buy something, but mm -hmm. don't be paralyzed by the analysis paralysis stuff, right? Yep. Don't, don't get stuck in your tracks. There's nothing that's going to teach you how to swim better than jumping in the water. You know, you can't read yep. about swimming in a book. You got to jump in the water and yep. go and get your teeth kicked in. Like it's going to happen. Get ready for mm -hmm. it. Go and buy something, let the tenant burn you and not pay you rent and have to go to, eviction court and pay an attorney and feel that sting. Let it, yeah. let a, a general contractor screw you out of a bunch of money and not do the job the right way. And all of a sudden it falls apart and have to go chase it after them. That's going to happen. Go walk yeah. into a house with roaches falling all over your head and walk oh. out with, uh, with fleas all over your pants. Like that's yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Uh, uh, have bed bugs in your house and have to deal with that scenario of, of eradicating that. Have people tell you that they're going to invest in your deal and then not send money the day of closing. <laughs> like, oh, geez. This stuff happens. You know, you've got to go through it though because it makes you a stronger person. It's going to refine your business. And the more you do that, the more that stuff does not happen to you because you learn from it. And then right. guess what? You start doing better deals long-term and like you start making more profits and more spread because you know what a real good deal is. And yep. it's easier to do it the longer you've been in it. So, uh, you know, a lot Great of people, they, they, get, they get punched in the gut and then they just roll out and they go and try something else new. And then guess what? You're new to that too. So you're going to get punched in the gut yep. there. Like it's not easy. The grass is not always greener. It just takes, it's just different. It takes a lot of watering, you know? Yeah. And my advice is it takes time. You're not going to learn this in a year. And, and so I think that's great advice. Invest in yourself and go and do a deal. And, and here's what I would add. I would add, go do a deal with Tim, go do a deal with me or with someone else who's doing deals where, Hey, I'm going to bring some money. I'm going to bring some sweat equity, Tim. And I'm guessing your investors will learn a lot from you. And and yeah. I prefer to learn that way. Tim's had his teeth kicked in. <laughs> He's learned and he can explain to you how not to have that happen. And so I prefer to partner with investors, maybe make less money on, than I would on my own on a really good deal, but also have less of those really painful experiences. And so find a Tim Bratz or, or someone who can help teach you those things and, and help speed up that learning curve. Uh, hey, Talking we're out of time. Quick, Sam. Uh, What's that? Uh, Dude, I have, I have some people with a lot of money and they passively invest with me. They're like, I want to just, you know, invest with you and then I'm going to go and do this stuff on my own. Yeah. Dude, 
good, go do it right now on your own. Like then, yeah. then you're going to respect the relationship. And you're going to respect <laughs> what I yep. do even more when you yep. see how not easy it is. Like, yep. do, do you realize majority of the buildings that I buy are from really smart, very wealthy entrepreneurs in another industry? Yep. And they made a bunch of money in e-commerce. They made a bunch of money on Wall Street. Yep. They made a bunch of money in their widget business, that they, whatever they do. Yeah. And, and, and all of a sudden, they have all this cash and they think, oh, I'll just go and buy a real estate. Never done it before. I don't have a joint venture partner. I don't have boots on the ground. I've yep. never interviewed the management company, but I bet I could just go and buy some real estate. You know what happens? Dude, you get burned. It's like you coming in and saying, uh, we go out to lunch and you said, hey, we eat in a restaurant. I could just go open up a restaurant, dude, it's a different yeah. business, you know? And so like the, partner up with somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot of money there's a lot of equity in these deals. You're talking about millions and millions of dollars. So there's enough room for everybody to get paid and get paid well and uh, not have to go through the learning curves of, of losing money or losing time. So that's yeah, that's definitely part of the educating part. Uh, well, it's like the guy that I'm buying the hotel from, he thought he could hire a hotel manager and never visit his property in nine mm -hmm. years. And uh, he bought it for three million. We're buying it for half a million. And guess what? One of our partners lives in there, in that city. He's going to be going to the property on a weekly basis. So, so yeah, don't be arrogant enough to think that you this is easy and and you can just crush it just because you're successful in another realm. But I appreciate that. That's that's great advice.